book of Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God's word says so that we can know what to believe, fighting off the desire to take what we believe and find evidence for it. We want to know what God's word says, like the Bereans who receive the word of God with all joy, but then search the scriptures to find out whether or not these things are true. And that's exactly where we wanna be. Now, if you have any questions, then you write out the word question or put a question mark in front of it, and then write out your question. Make sure it makes sense. Reread it a couple of times, make corrections if you need to, and then add the reference to it as well. And uh, we will take time uh, to look up your reference and answer any questions that you may have. Now, this podcast, uh, the Q&A portion anyway, is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. If you are watching our studies or you're at our studies and you have questions, this is the place that you can come to ask questions after our study. This last Wednesday night, we had a special guest, Elisa Childers. We interviewed her on progressive Christianity. So if you have any questions about that, then we would love to hear from you. The first question that we have today has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God. What is the sovereignty of God? And I do have some scriptures here uh, to bring that up and show what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. But let's just talk about that word for a moment. Uh, the word for sovereignty, um, let me see if I can get this pulled up here. The word, yeah, let's talk about the word for a moment. The word for sovereignty comes from the idea of a sovereign. So you have a sovereign over a nation. They are a king. They are a dignitary. They have some rights to be able to do what they want. There have been kings in history that have been what you would call totally sovereign. They can do whatever they want to do, and they're usually tyrannical. Uh, God is sovereign because who's going to tell God what God can't do? So God gets to choose exactly what he does. That is the sovereignty of God. Now, the Bible teaches clearly God's sovereignty. Let me go ahead and show you a couple of passages. So this is, well, we're not going to have our passages up today. Huh. 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 Let me see if it's... Um, Nope, nope, I guess that's not going to be up. Let me just read it to you. All right. Uh, for some reason, a little technical difficulty here. So Psalms 115.3 says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now that's sovereignty. Our God's in heaven. He's on the throne. He does what he pleases. Uh, in Proverbs 69, a, man, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So God's working in our life his plan for us. God's directing our steps. It means we don't have sovereignty. We have, well, we'll talk about our freedom of will in a moment. Psalms 135, 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does <clears throat> in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in the depths of the places. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That's the sovereignty of God. And again, it is taught clearly. Now, uh, Sovereignty is often given a different definition. So some will say that someone like me who believes in freedom of choice, I believe that God in his sovereignty made man with a free will, that God is so sovereign that he doesn't have to determine or dictate everything that I do. 
but that he gives me choices. The Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. If you can't choose whom you would serve, if believing in sovereignty means that you believe that men can't choose who they would serve, then you've got to ask why the Bible would say, choose you this day whom you could serve. Or the Bible says, I com uh, God commands men everywhere to repent. If you can't repent, but God commands men everywhere to repent, but there are some that God chooses that can't repent, then, then what does that mean to how God's communicating with us? It seems like it wouldn't be direct. It seems like it would be deceptive. But God in his sovereignty can choose to give men free will. And then God in his sovereignty can, sovereignty can choose how to give men eternal life. And so the Bible says we are saved by grace. And oftentimes those in Calvinism will say, we don't understand grace. To them, grace is God said, I choose you to be a vessel of dishonor, separated me from ever, forever in hell. They call that God's grace. That's because on the other side, there are some chosen who can't be, who can't resist it, irresistible grace. And, and they'll say, that's the grace of God. But the true grace of God is God giving undeserved favor to whom he wishes. And he gets to set the parameters. And he set the parameters for faith. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anyone believes in me, he will have eternal life. So we trust, we believe, the person who believes, even the, the passage that is used to argue the sovereignty of God, the potter and the clay, and that God gets to make the pottery into the clay that God wants to make it into, even that passage itself near the end talks about how God chooses which vessels are vessels of honor and which ones are vessels of dishonor. This is in Romans 9, and I'm going to go to, I think it's 31, and um, I'll try to get back up here on the screen for you. For some reason, I got some, I got some difficulties. All right, well. All right, is what it is. Okay, so um, Romans 9, 31 says, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? <clears throat> because they did not seek it by faith. God doesn't say, because God didn't choose them. And don't you worry about it. He said, because they didn't seek it by faith. And then he goes on to say, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I think we could say that shame is a vessel of dishonor. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so God's sovereignty is that God can do whatever he wants, but God, and this is a crazy thought, but God has limited himself with his promises. God is totally righteous and cannot be unrighteous. God is, God is good and cannot be wicked and cannot be evil, and he never changes. But God has made us promises that if you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. You will not be a vessel of dishonor. So you can choose to be a follower of Christ, and that's the sovereignty of God. The argument isn't the, over the sovereignty of God. It's like when a Pentecostal church will say, well, that church doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. No, they believe in the Holy Spirit. They just don't believe he works the same way you believe that he works. And I'm not saying whoever's right or wrong. I'm just saying you can't say when someone doesn't believe what you believe about the work of the Holy Spirit that the church doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. The same, team, same thing with sovereignty. Now, people do it. 
but they shouldn't. To say that someone who believes that you're saved by faith, by given a choice by God, whether or not to believe or believe, that that is somehow robbing God of his sovereignty or not believing in sovereignty, just because I don't because I don't believe in the same way that God's sovereignty works out. You believe that God has sovereignly chose um, someone by whatever criteria you believe, because I don't even understand by what criteria you're saying that God chooses or doesn't choose someone. If it's not by faith, then what's the criteria that's used? It's, it's by faith, according to the scriptures. But if you believe that God, through some other criteria, chooses one as dishonor and one as honor, and that God can do whatever he wants to do, you call that sovereignty. It doesn't mean you don't believe in sovereignty. I think that you have a misunderstanding about what determines salvation. So when you say, I don't believe in sovereignty, just because I don't believe that God uses some other some other determining factor to choose someone to be lost or found besides faith, doesn't mean I don't believe in sovereignty. In, in fact, I, I know the argument would be that God uses the process of faith in order to bring someone into the kingdom of God. But what, what happens to the passages where God says to choose if someone doesn't have the right to be able to choose? It seems to me that everyone has to have that right to be able to choose. And so that's my answer to what is the sovereignty of God. It's the free, it's God giving, doing what he pleases, what he wants. And it pleased God to love man and to give him an opportunity to be saved. And anyone who calls out on the name of the Lord will be saved and choose you this day who, this day who you will serve. Um, the Bible says God loves the entire world, which the definition of love is in 1 Corinthians 13, and if you go through that, he doesn't suffer long, doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it would seem that God, according to, to extreme Calvinism, determines even sin in people's lives. And the crazy thing about it today is, is that the Calvinism of today, you're talking about John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and John Piper, that is lapsetarianism, it's extreme Calvinism. They believe God determines everything and that there are people who cannot get saved. That used to be an extreme form of Calvinism. It's not an extreme form anymore. Um, it is what most Calvinists believe. Now I know some who believe slightly different about uh, determination and about uh, some Calvinists who do not believe in limited atonement, uh, but that's not been the majority of them. The majority of them today believe in double predestination, and this extreme form of Calvinism. And I think it will, I think that, and, and, and somewhere around 20% of Christians are Calvinist, 20, 25%, the number kind of fluctuates up and down. Uh, and um, we just wanna make sure that we're following what the scriptures say. And it says that we are kept by God through faith. And that's the sovereignty of God. Um, God chooses those that he wants to get saved. Let me read you another passage here. If, if sovereignty means that God does whatever he wants to do, no matter what that is, then what do you do with a passage like this? And then you believe that God's limited salvation, some can't get saved. What do you do with a passage like 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, which says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and God were sovereign and didn't give men free choice, 
then all people would indeed be saved. So I'm trying, just trying to look here and get my, uh, get things working again. All right. Well, we'll work on it later on. Um, trying to, trying to get our scriptures back up again. All right. So good to see you guys. We'll go ahead and have our Q and A. Good to have you with us. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, this is a Q and A. You can ask your questions through the comment section, put the word question in, then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. If, if I don't just, if I can't make sense of it, that I'm probably going to pass on it. So make sure it makes sense and then go ahead and put in uh, any references, even though I can't share references today on the screen, I'll be looking up the references anyway and and reading them. All right. So good to see you, Keith. Good to have you here. Um, good to see you guys. I want to welcome you. I hope that you guys uh, are, are blessed and that God is really doing a great work in your life, that you're drawing closer to him, walking close to Jesus, uh, following after the scripture, seeking him, keeping short accounts with God. Uh, so we have our first question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, hello, Pastor. John 10, 28 and 29 seems to support that those who put their faith in Christ cannot lose their salvation. Can you share your thoughts? Thank you, Pastor. Yes, I can. Um, Albert, let's take a look at that. So this is John 10, 28 and 29. So let me go there. And I will not be putting it on the screen because that's not working today. John 10, but I'm glad the rest of it's working. We don't have any other issues, whatever that issue is. Um, so this is John, you said 28 and 29, right? Okay, there we go. Um, so let me go ahead and I'll read this to you. So it says, still trying to get it to work a little bit. If I can't do it, if I could get it to work. All right. So it says in verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they, let's go back a little bit. Let's go to 27. Um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he says, so in fact, I'm going to go back even a little bit more. Uh, it says in verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, this simply is saying that they aren't, they aren't God seekers. They aren't his sheep. If you respond positively to the light that God has given you, and then you meet Jesus, you would receive Jesus. He says, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. So if you are one that's walking with a heart of wanting to know what God wants for you, that inner knowledge that God's given you, Book of Romans tells us, and creation, then you will hear his voice. He says, and I know them, then they will follow me, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, whom has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, when it comes to the once saved, always saved debate, I've always said that the debate doesn't make much sense, because if you have a person who gives their lives to Christ, and then they become an apostate, at one point, they were Christian, they were going to church, they were learning, they were growing. From all outward signs, they had committed their lives to Christ. And then they became an apostate. Both those who believe in, in once saved, always saved, and those who don't are going to believe the same thing about this guy. The once saved, always saved are going to say, well, he was never really saved. 
if he was really saved, he would have never have gone out from us. So the fact that he became an apostate showed that he didn't have a genuine saving faith. And so that person needs to be saved. And so you would want to evangelize that person if you were a if, if you were a once saved, always saved person. If you don't believe in once saved, always saved, and you believe this guy was genuinely Christian, and then he lost his salvation, then you also believe that that guy needs to be witnessed to. They agree on more than they disagree on, because no one in the once saved, always saved movement is going to say that an obvious apostate is saved. They're going to say that they were never saved. And that's really an important understanding of this issue. Uh, now, where do I stand on once saved, always saved? I, uh, I lean towards when you make a genuine commitment to Christ, you can't lose it. You can't leave it. That's what I lean towards. But there are certain verses in the Bible that give me pause that make me go, you know, you got to read the Bible for what the Bible is and you, and you don't get to pick and choose. And there's certainly tensions between passages like this. I give them eternal life. And if he gave them eternal life and they lose eternal life, then he never gave them eternal life in the first place, right? That's the argument. So there's tension between that and a passage like in, um, in Galatians that there, there's a few passages where Paul makes statements about going back into the law and and moving away from Christ. And I go, boy, I don't know. You know, there's some tension there. I'm I'm quite sure there's supposed to be tension in that aspect. But when it comes to once saved, always saved, I, you know, you put a gun to my head, make me tell you what I really believe. I believe the genuine Christian cannot lose his salvation. Now, there are tears, right? And there are people that call Jesus Lord, Lord, that don't make it into the kingdom of heaven. And so we can't assume it. And the Bible tells us to tell people, make sure that you're truly in the faith. I think that's um, 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself to make sure that you are in the faith. And a lot of people fight against that concept of examining yourself to make sure you're in the faith. They, they feel like you are being, that you're, you're taking away their security in their salvation. Look, I want you to have security, but I want you to have security in if you are really saved. If there's an, if you might not be saved, then I don't want to support you in that because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I would say my thoughts on this passage is yes, he gives them eternal life. No one's able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I would say these people are genuinely saved. Uh, they are his sheep. When it says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That doesn't mean that they were predetermined before the foundations of the world to be his sheep. It means that they were choosing to believe and follow by faith. And when they learned of Jesus, because they were had a heart that was humble and had faith, which does, is it meritorious, by the way, uh, doesn't mean that that's a work. It just simply means that you receive and you believe and you're looking for what God has for you. Then you have a genuine commitment to him and that you are saved. Um, I haven't always believed this way. I have changed my mind over the years. When I was a younger Christian, um, even in the pastorate, I believe that you could, it was very difficult to do it, but you could leave your salvation. I don't, I never believed you could lose your salvation. Like, oh, where, where'd it go? I had salvation and I lost it. But that you could leave your salvation. But over the years and just looking at passages, I found myself kind of vacillating back and forth. And I'm not afraid to say, uh, I don't know. 
I'm not afraid to say I'm leaning this way. I think some other passages have to be explained when, if you're going to come down solidly on the once saved, always saved. If you're going to come down on the look, you could walk away from God. Then there's other passages that have to be explained. If you're going to, if you believe that it's possible to walk away from God, you have at least got to be able to say it's very difficult to do so, because God's going to leave the 99 and go after the one. So it's very unlikely, and it's very hard, and it's it would almost be impossible if it is impo- if it is possible at all, and. As I said, it may be, it just may be very, very, very difficult. I lean towards um, the perseverance of the saints, that if you are really a saint, then you will persevere. The difference between that and Calvinism is Calvinism would believe that you were chosen before, that you were his sheep before. Now, the text never says that. It simply says, you're not my sheep. So these religious leaders, are, are they've made their decision on what they want to do and how they want to live. They're not his sheep. These guys aren't searchers. They aren't open to find the truth. He doesn't ever say who his sheep are. And that gets read into the text. So they'll read it as if um, my sheep, those chosen before the foundations of the world to be my sheep, um, hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. But it doesn't say that it simply says my sheep. What's the criteria for my sheep? Again, once you kind of step back and try to read it with fresh ears, you've got to start saying, well, then what makes someone his sheep? Is it an an arbitrary choice by God? Or is there something else that God has given man that man can follow, believe, trust in, and when they come to Christ, they can see him immediately? All right. So thank you very much. Uh, good to see you. And, and that's a great question, by the way. I really like it. And thank you for sharing uh, the verse, even though I could not put them up on the screen today. Uh, so we have a follow-up. All right. So Tim, hi, Tim, how are you? Uh, so Tim says, follow-up, sent too soon. I'm I'm reading the Psalm of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Let me go ahead and give you to let you know what that is. So the Psalms of Ascent were when the children of Israel would go to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And as they walked on the road, the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more the, the, the more they gathered together with other groups of people that were going in. Let's just choose Passover. It could be Pentecost, it could be Tabernacles, it could be any of the seven feasts. But while they're making their way there, they would be getting closer and closer, and they would begin to send sing songs, psalms of ascent, because Jerusalem is 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 in the mountains, and everything around it is lower. So you ascend up to Jerusalem. And they would sing these psalms of ascent and they would join with other people and they would sing these psalms of ascent. And one of the psalms that they would sing is the one that, that they sang on Palm Sunday, um, proclaiming Jesus as being king while he was riding on the colt of a donkey, as was foretold about him. So that's what the psalms of ascent were. Um, I kind of like the anticipation. You're leaving your home, you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to stay there for the feast and you're singing and rejoicing and praising God as you're ascending to go and have this experience of the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles uh, or um, the, the Feast of Trumpets, the uh, fresh fruits uh, or the, the uh, first fruits, the, the, the Feast of the Fresh Fruits. 
they're delicious because they're fresh. No, the, the first fruits. Um, I, I like that idea of being on that ascent and singing those. So when you're going back and reading them, uh, you can think about yourself joining with other believers on their way to Jerusalem and worshiping them. The closest that we have to it, and it's pretty close, is when we're in church and we all begin to worship and sing and the room just, the voices fill the room and you just know that people are singing about their God and we're joining together uh, singing about them. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Uh, Tim, good to have you here. If you're visiting here with us for the first time, really glad to have you here. We have a question from Jari. Jari says, uh, good to see you, Jari. Jari says, during the time of Peleg, the earth was divided. <clears throat> Is this the evidence of a um, supercontinent called um, Pangaea? I don't know if it'll be called Pangaea or not, but um, after after the flood of Noah, thanks. Um, that's the thought. The thought is, is that everything was one continent. And during the days of Peleg, the land was divided. Uh, did you put in the reference here? I don't think you did. I would like to go back and look at the reference. Um, but that's the idea that the, the lands were divided and um, and the continents were eventually formed. We do have a continental drift. We do know that continents were together at one point and drifted apart. So uh, they've been able to determine that. Um, as far as I understand it, uh, I don't think that Pangaea is a, we would refer to it as Pangaea today. We'll put it that way. The Bible doesn't refer to it as Pangaea. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and um, let's bring in Cheyenne's question first here. So Cheyenne says, question. If we are given a new body when we get to heaven and we are complete, does this mean that there are no babies in heaven? Okay, so I'm thinking ahead, Cheyenne. Cheyenne, by the way, good to have you here with us. So I'm thinking that you're talking about after the resurrection. So you have the first resurrection of the saints. You've got the second resurrection called the second death. You have people judged and you have all of us in our glorified bodies. This corruptible has put on incorruptible. This mortal has put on immortality. What I would think without, this is off the top of my head, all right? So I, I don't know that there's any verses that would speak to this. We do know in the millennium that there are children at an older age. But in, the, in heaven, when we are given our glorified bodies, do you believe that we will be the age forever. What, when, what about someone who's full grown? I, I believe that in that time, uh, everyone will be full grown and have complete understanding. They'll understand that they were a child when the resurrection happened and they are now in their glorified body, the same as you and I will be. And I believe that someone who is 105 and can barely move when they die will be in their glorified body the same as you and me and they will know that they were 105 when they died and that they're in their glorified body. So again, that's off the top of my head, Cheyenne, I, with you know, trying to think of any scriptures that would speak to that, but I don't think that there are. So that's what I would believe. Um, be willing, I would be willing to be corrected by a Bible verse that would say something like, you know, all the babies in heaven for all of eternity. And then I would be like, well, I guess I wasn't right. But I don't think I am. I, I think I am right. I think that um, that when we get our glorified body, then, and that's again, after the resurrection, then we will all have these, um, 
well, incorruptible, immortal bodies, which are going to be like Christ. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So we have a question from Matt. Matt says, um, excuse me, we have a question from um, Abshag. Abishag? Abishag. Sorry, butcher your name. I'm bad at that. Matthew 11, 12. What did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of heaven suffered violence? Well, let's go there. I want to go there. Matthew 11, 12. <clears throat> Again, I can't put it up on the screen today, but we can go there and I can read it to you. I'm going to start a little bit before that. Let me just get back how far I have back I have to go. Um, so he's talking about John the Baptist. All right. So let me just go ahead and read this to you. I'm going to start from verse uh, seven. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he to whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one risen greater than John the Baptist. But he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John, let me look at what your references here. Matthew 11, 12, yep. And from, okay, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Yeah, so there are a few different ideas as to exactly what Jesus meant when he said this. Uh, he obviously, let's look at what we know he couldn't have said. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to them your left. He said to love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, um, bless, bless those who curse you. So he's certainly not telling us that we are to be violent to take the kingdom of God out into the world. That, that's not what he's saying. He says here in verse 12, after talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, of course, has his life taken from him, um, until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. So John the Baptist is going to be, be killed, suffer violence, and the violent take it by force. The, the other thought is he's talking about those who are in the world who will be violent towards believers and persecution. He goes on to say, let's see if we can get a little bit better idea for this. Uh, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who has come, he who has ears, let him hear. So um, let me just read verse 12 again. And in those days, John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence and the violence take it by force. So the idea of the kingdom of heaven being taken by force has caused some to believe that there's some kind of militance behind it. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus meant. I think that rather Jesus means there's going to be the suffering of violence that he's going to go through and that it's going to be taken by force by God Almighty. The kingdom of heaven will be taken by force by God because the direction that we've been given doesn't fit with being with with any kind of militant actions or ideas. All right, Abishag, I hope that uh, I hope that helps. Uh, you want to compare scripture to scripture. You want to rightly divide the word of God. It can equip us for everything. And one passage isn't going to tell us something else. So we're not told here to go out and take the kingdom of God by force. It just says, um, 
the the and the violent take it by force. And um, it's one of those passages that has a lot of different meanings and a lot of different places uh, where people land. All right, I'll um, I'll do a little bit more research on this passage. And Abishag, this may be one of them that we will use at the beginning of our next one when I can come in and um, with a little bit more information and maybe answer that a little bit better. Uh, so we have a question from Annika. Annika, Annika, good to see you. Annika says, would you consider Joseph a prophet? So we're talking about Joseph, um, the 11th son of, is it the 11th son? Yeah, I think it's the 11th son of Jacob, um, the, the, the only surviving son of Rachel. Would I consider him to be a prophet? Um, I, again, you know, these questions, you kind of go off the top of your head. Oh, he was given dreams by God. Those dreams came to pass. He was able to tell the dreams of people while he was in prison. Uh, he was able to save many people by the seven years of plenty, so he could take them through the seven years that weren't. So I'm gonna say I would consider Joseph to be a prophet. And um, again, you wanna consider what, what criteria would you come up with that you would say someone is either a prophet or not a prophet. And so I would consider Joseph to be a prophet because he's telling dreams, because God's using him, he's, he's, he's speaking messages to people. So if a prophet is someone who hears a message from God and gives it to individuals, Joseph's receiving it through his dreams and I would consider him to be a prophet. All right, Annika, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And there seems to be some difference between New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophets, right? Uh, so we have a question from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you, good to have you here. Uh, Daniel says, um, what are some signs that you are in a progressive church, but don't know it? You mentioned there were progressive churches in Tucson. Yeah, and you can, there's a place that you can go, Daniel. I mean, you can just go online and you can look up progressive churches in Tucson. Remember, uh, the term progressive Christianity is not pejorative, meaning it's not a negative term. This is what they call themselves. So when I say that church is part of progression, a uh, part of progressive Christianity, that's a positive to them. They, that's what they call themselves. So we're just identifying with a term that they have called themselves. They believe they are progressing and they believe that they are still Christian. But you can go to a website, you can just go to, go, go to your search engine, type in what are progressive churches in Tucson and a list of progressive churches will come up, all right? And um, I am unwilling at this point to identify suspicions on some churches that I believe are becoming progressive until I have more of a confirmation about it. I don't want to, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to discourage anybody in the church they're attending if their church is not going down that road. Um, so that's the reason I'm a little vague. Um, if I had that list in front of me, if I took time to look it up, I wouldn't mind reading it to you. Um, for whatever reason, they got a list on churches <clears throat> that are considered to be progressive. And um, I think you could do that in any town that you live in and you could identify what are progressive churches. But let's just say you're attending a church and you're not sure. Maybe they're starting to go progressive. What kind of things are you gonna start to hear? Uh, you're, you're gonna start to hear a lot about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament and Jesus. Um, and 
certainly the love of Jesus. They want to focus on that. We're talking about the love of Jesus and the love of Jesus to them is not 1 Corinthians 13, but it's acceptance. Acceptance of anybody is walking in love. They're going to start to deny the existence of, of any kind of hell. Um, I think that there's a need to be more biblical about what we talk about when we talk about hell, uh, I think. But, but the denial that there's a separation from God uh, is one of those things that you would start looking at. Um, they would, if you begin to hear them talk about affirming um, and that people who are in gay, gay relationships, LBGTQ, whatever, uh, are they affirming, then that's gonna be some signs that you're in, at least a, a certain pastor within a church is leaning towards those ways. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. So uh, we have a question from Susan. Susan, good to see you. Good to have you here. Uh, Susan says, can you help me with Genesis 6, 6 and 7? Does this support one can walk away from their faith? God changed his mind. Ah, yeah, we, yeah, we talked about this not long ago. It was one of our first questions in our Q&A. Genesis 6, 6 and 7. Um, I wish I could put this up on the screen for you because I could change it between... Um, because I could change it between uh, versions, but I can do that anyway and let you know what that is. So um, I wanna just go ahead, Susan, and read you what it says in the New King James. And the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made mankind. Now that's the New King James. I'm going to now switch over to the, I'm going to go to the ESV. It may take me a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to go to the ESV. I want to read you the ESV. So the Lord said, this is verse six now in the ESV version. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So note the words there, sorry and grieved. The word for regret, and let me just go ahead, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull up my Strong's Concordance real quick. I wanna look at that, um, I want to look at that word uh, for regret in Genesis 6, 6. Let me get here. And it says, and it repented the Lord. So that's where the real confusion comes in because we see repent as a change of mind. Um, and the word doesn't mean to repent. And that, that's why the later versions choose regret rather than repent. And regret is a feeling of, of grieving, of sorrow. Um, it, it, it's a primary that comes from breathe strongly by implication to be sorry, in pity, um, to, to uh, let's see, to avenge, to ease, repent. But the idea is to breathe strongly by implication to be sorry, um, to pity. So God is not repenting in the way that a man would repent. God is repenting in the fact that he is grieving over the choices that men made, even though God knew those choices beforehand, God can still be sorry for 
the what the people are going to go through or are going through or have gone to the the wickedness and the evil and the violence that was on the earth during the days of Noah that God was sorry that he was sorry for them that he had pity on them that he was sorry for where they had come to and that he was sorry in that sense that he had made mankind because of what he was going to have to do for mankind a good question by the way Susan and I understand why uh we did do if you just go back um if you go to the our YouTube channel and you look on uh under the Q&A's the Truth West, Truth West podcast, just scroll down until it's all Q&As and you search down that. It won't be very far down there that you'll see um, Does God Repent is, as a title of it. And we, I cover it. I bring up scriptures. Uh, we talk about the different meanings of the words in there. All right. So uh, I appreciate that. And good question, by the way. So um, we have a question from Sunshine. Sunshine says, um, question, if we go through a dark period and find ourselves unable to pray or read the word, do you think we would go to hell if we die in the middle of that darkness? Uh, no. Um, look, if, if, if you want, just go back and read, start reading the Psalms and you find people that are in crisis all the time. You find Job in darkness and yet he's a righteous man the bible says but he's in darkness and doesn't understand what's going on at all now he wants to seek god you're saying unable to pray or read the word um no i i if you are a genuine christian to go through a difficulty a trial even a crisis in faith which i believe can that god can use for the positive for an individual that goes through such a crisis um, I believe that you are still in a relationship with God. This kind of goes back to something we were asked earlier, Sunshine. Maybe you weren't here for it. But one of the first questions we had was, how do we feel about um, once saved, always saved? Really, the passage that says, my sheep hear my voice, and I give them eternal life. And if you are given eternal life, then you if you lose it, then you weren't really given eternal life. So the idea of being given eternal life is that it is eternal. So that person would have to go on forever with the Lord and that I lean towards that even if you even if you walk away if you become a prodigal he will leave the 99 and he will go after the one I um I, I attended a Pentecostal church when I was in my teens at 19 years old the pastor of the church that I attended had an affair with his secretary I walk in I love the guy who was preaching Pastor Bob I, I loved his preaching but I walk in and there's some old guy teaching He's like, I don't know, 50 and uh, maybe even younger than that. But I'm like, where's Pastor Bob? And, and someone said, didn't you hear? He had an affair with the secretary. So I called a friend of mine who had been a mentor to me while, while I was um, at the Methodist church and his wife answered and I asked for him and she said, you haven't heard? He left me for another woman. Now, I said, if, that, if this is what Christianity is all about, I'm done. And I walked away from the Lord for a year. I'm not going to blame them because if I had things right, what those guys did wouldn't have caused me to walk away. There were obvious flaws in my life at 19 years old that I had to work out. But what I can tell you, Sunshine, is that God came after me. I walked away from the Lord. I'm not following Jesus at all. I'm not praying. I'm not attending church. I'm not seeking God. 
I'm now living for Robert Furrow. And this goes on for a year. And God takes everything away from me. He took my Jeep, he took my motorcycle, he took my car. I'm 19 years old. My girlfriend breaks up with me. This happens over the course of a year. And she breaks up with me at her house. And uh, she's like, take my car, I'll pick it up later. She just wants me to go, right? Because she broke up with me. So I, I drive me home. And I turn her radio over to 88.3, which was K-Lite in those days. I grew up in Albuquerque. This is a Christian radio station that I used to listen to. And there's a song on by Chuck Gerard, um, our love song, which Chuck Gerard is in. Interesting connection, Elisa Childers that we had at our service last week as a guest uh, and talked about progressive Christianity is the daughter of Chuck Gerard. And I told her the story, at least an abbreviated version of it. Um, but as I turn on the radio and they're on with a song called Little Pilgrim, and the song says, Little Pilgrim walking down the road of life. Can't you see that there are many others who are just like you? And they take a little turn to the left to see what that road has to offer them. But you got to make it back to the main road anyhow. And you've got all that lost time to make up for. And it's a sad thing when you find yourself alone. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I drove home choking back the tears, actually just, just cried. But the last line of the song says, instead of it's a sad thing when you find yourself alone, the last line says, it's a glad thing when you find yourself back home. And that was like God's invitation to me. And I went home, laid down on my bed, looked up at the ceiling and said, okay, God, I'm done. No longer what I want, but whatever you want. And that was the main change between the 14-year-old Robert that gave his life to Christ and in 19 years walked away. I saw God as my co-pilot. I saw God as helping me to become who, who I wanted to be. But at 19, I surrendered, or 20, I surrendered everything to God saying, whatever you want. But God came after me. And since God came after me, then I know God wants me. I have that in my life. I was the sheep that went astray and he came after me. And so I can't believe that in this darkness, sunshine, that God would leave you in that. I think instead, um, I think instead you should do what you can do by faith. I, I know that, that the dar that darkness is happening now, but by faith, go for a walk with God. By faith, start to seek him. Do what you can do, doing what you know the Bible tells you to do. And by faith, reach out, at, talk to God. God's going to do his work in coming after you. And if, um, if this darkness is a revelation of something you need to change in your life, then you want to be like the psalmist who says, search me, O God, and know my ways. Try me and know my heart and see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All right. So we have a question from AA. AA, 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 AA. What is uh, the thousand-year reign spoken of in tribulation. I find myself arguing that it's not the second chance for repentance or staying behind to save someone. All right, yeah, so the thousand-year reign in the book of Revelation is the millennium period. It's the time when the world is restored to what it was before it fell in the Garden of Eden. There will be no more thistles, no more thorns. Um, the, uh, the Christians that have... Uh, been resurrected to be with Christ, are going to rule and reign with him. The people who survive the tribulation period will live on the earth for a thousand years. And um, there, there's going to be, they're going to live longer. Uh, they're going to populate the earth. 
and then the these are still fallen humans at the same time that there's been a resurrection uh, jesus reigns for a thousand years on the throne of david and there are humans who are still vulnerable and when satan is released from the chains that he was put in in the beginning of the millennium then he will deceive the nations and there will be a gog and magog war and uh, and, and there will be a rebellion against God once again, and God will take care of that rebellion at the end of that thousand-year reign, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Some believe that that thousand-year period doesn't represent a literal thousand years, but represents a long time frame, and that we are in the millennium right now. This is all millennialism. We are in the millennium right now, and one day Jesus is just going to return because we're going through the millennium right now. Um, but where's the peace? If if we are in the millennium, where's the peace? That's just my problem with it. Um, you can look up that view. It's all millennialism. Um, most Catholics are all millennial. Presbyterians are all millennial. Then you've got post-millennial, which believe that we're making the world better and better and better as Christians, and that we're Christianizing the world, and one day we're going to hand it over to God. So those are the three different views on the millennium. And um, you're, you're going to find this. Um, Bethel is a um, post-millennial kingdom theology kind of a church. Um, a lot of Pentecostal churches are kingdom theology. They don't believe that there will be um, a a rapture before. They believe that instead things are going to they're going to make they're going to Christianize the world and hand a Christianized world over to God. And so you'll hear that in a lot of the songs in a lot of these churches. It'll be like you know we're taking over we're bringing your kingdom right now here and now. So it'll you'll hear that uh, in their songs. So, um, AA, I take it that you're fairly new, and uh, it would be good for you uh, to take some time just to look up what is the millennium, read it, make sure you're getting from a good place, from good information, and um, just take some time to, to look at it. Um, a lot of the things that I said probably went really quick. If you're new to Christ, you're kind of hearing them, it's hard to grasp and understand what they are. I do believe it is a thousand-year period, a literal thousand-year period, that Jesus will bring the judgment of the dead, the second resurrection. He will bring the judgment after it is done, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, <clears throat> we're in a study right now in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter six, and we're gonna go through the tribulation period over the next few months. And then we're gonna get to the millennium, and we're gonna get to the new heavens and new earth. So I'd love to have you join us on Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Uh, you can, if you're in Tucson, you can come join us live, but you can do it online um, at either calvarytucson.com or YouTube or Facebook. Uh, you can go there and you can join us for our studies through the book of Revelation. I think that you're gonna get a lot of insight because we're taking time to really dive in and try to answer the questions about the book of Revelation as we make our way through there, all right? So um, let's see. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the conversation is going on here, but I like what Keith says here. Uh, Keith says, remember, we as believers are not to question other salvation. We are to examine the fruit. Uh, we are fruit examiners, and that, that's exactly right. I have no desire to try to tell you or judge you as to whether or not you're saved. But um, you can look at the fruit. And you can look at the fruit in your own life if you're wondering, have I really made a commitment to Christ? And if someone is producing bad fruit, then you don't follow them. I don't know. Hey, God's the one who knows who, who are his. He's, he knows who, who belong to him. 
and uh, he is able to do it. Um, he's able to um, to take care, maybe to bring them to him or into a deeper walk with him. Um, but if you suspect someone isn't a, a genuine Christian because of the way they're acting, I would say to begin to pray for them because our prayers do make a difference and our prayers do change destiny. Um, so, so we have a question here from Cynthia. And so Cynthia says, hello, I'm a mother of children in the autism spectrum. Since you are arguing in the subject of salvation and God's sovereignty, I'm hoping you know where does God's grace extend of his redemption? So, um, Cynthia, I believe that, that children or those who cannot understand are, are taken by God. I believe in an age of accountability. And we do have on our YouTube page a video on whether or not children go to heaven. And I, and I lay out the case for it. And there's more of a case than you think. So some people will often hear, you, you say, I believe in, in the age of accountability, and they'll go, oh man, there's, like, there's nothing biblical about that. But there actually is. Uh, when, when Jonah was up on the hillside and he's mad at God, God said, are there not, this is the city of Nineveh, are there not a hundred and, I think it's 120,000, are there not 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left? So that God cared about those who didn't know right or wrong. In, when the children of Israel were gonna enter the promised land, the unbelieving generation died in the wilderness and their children went into the promised land. He didn't take it out on the children that their parents were unbelieving. He brought the children into the promised land. Abraham believed what God said and it was accounted to him righteousness. Abraham never knew the name of Jesus, but he's saved by Jesus because of the limitations of where he was before the cross. He believed and he was saved. And so mental limitations, I believe, that and, and there's other passages as well. Like I said, go and listen to our teaching. I think we've got a full-length teaching on do children go to heaven, and we've got a smaller 10, 15-minute video that quickly hits the spots and goes over them fast. Um, but there's there's much more that if you've got a child on the autism spectrum and they cannot understand or comprehend the idea of salvation, this is a mental issue that causes them not to comprehend it, then God will your, your children will, will be saved, and I believe that. And um, even though I might not have done a great job of explaining it here, um, like I said, we've got a couple of videos on it, and I, I go through the passages and break them down. But thank you very much, Cynthia, for asking your question. Really glad that you did. Um, God really does, does love your children. God loves children, and um, yeah. So uh, you can go ahead and take time uh, to look that up. All right. So uh, <clears throat> see if we've got any more questions here. Our time is almost done. We've got just a few more minutes, um, but it is good to see you guys. Uh, if um, if you have um, if you have a question, go ahead and put it in now. I'm probably not going to be able to get to it, but I will look at this later. I think there was the one question that we had today 
<clears throat> about um, the violence, the violence taken by force. And that might be where we start next time, but I'll take a look at it. I do want to have that at some point in the future. Um, so um, I've got a question here from Cecilia. Cecilia says, we have just a few more minutes here, three minutes. Uh, Hi, Pastor Robert. Lilith was removed from the Bible, or could it be that it was Mary Magdalene? Um, all right, Cecilia. So, no, Lilith is um, a mythical person and was never removed from the Bible. And I do know that there are those who will try to say that it is. And Lilith is, Lilith is not Mary Magdalene. And Cecilia, as you probably know, there are a lot of different ideas about who Lilith was. And so for those of you who don't know, there are those that believe that Adam was married to Lilith before he was married to Eve. And Lilith has become this kind of seductive spirit that goes out and seduces men. Um, this is a legend. It has nothing to do with anything biblical. Lilith, Lilith was never in any Bible manuscript at all. Uh, it has nothing to do with the truth that is in the Word of God. I realize that there are certain religions that will embrace the idea of Lilith, but just know, Cecilia, that's never in the Bible, never in any of the manuscripts. And if you question that, I would just encourage you to do your own research. Go back in and look. Go back and find out. If you're, you know, if you think Lilith was removed, go back and see where they say Lilith is removed and then go look at it and see, could she really have been removed? So, um, nope, it's, she's a Lilith is a legend. Um, Mary Magdalene is a woman that was possessed by seven demons and Jesus set her free. And um, she became a follower of Jesus who followed him to the cross and to the tomb uh, on, the, on the day of resurrection. All right. So it's been really good to see you guys. Sorry that I didn't have my scriptures working. Uh, I'll make sure they're going by the next time uh, that we get things going here. But it's good to see you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, have a humble heart. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. And uh, may the Lord truly bless you. And may you find blessing by hearing and doing the word of God. Jesus said we are blessed more than even Mary, her, his mother, when we hear the word of God and do it. So we have a service in about an hour. We're gonna be looking at the resurrection, why the resurrection is important to you and me. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff as we take our time to start covering the resurrection. We're in Matthew 24. This is our hundredth study in the book of Luke. We've done a hundred of them so far. And um, so we've got one more chapter to finish things out. All right, so uh, love you guys. God bless you. I'm out and I will, Lord willing, be back with you on Wednesday at four o'clock for another Truth Quest podcast. Again, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Tucson. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.